Well, in this series, it's complicated. Last week, this week, we're, as was just mentioned, we're kind of looking at the topic of marriage. It, it, there is kind of a part one, part two feeling going here. So uh, if this is your first time with us or you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go to our website or, or get our phone app and listen to last week's sermon. And Because there's certainly a kind of a context, a background last week that kind of lays the groundwork for some of where we're going today. Since, since it does tie... I want to use a verse, a, a, a central verse last week, and it's a central verse this week to kind of the, the, the theme of what we're doing with marriage, and that's found in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among, look at this word, say it with me, all, all of us. That doesn't just mean all people who are married. It means all people, young people, old people, divorced, widowed, never been married, whatever. All people are to honor this concept, this idea of marriage. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. Folks, just from this verse, you and I see as followers of Christ, we have a mandate on our lives. The world's not going to applaud us for this. The world's not going to appreciate us for this. But we do have a mandate that we are a people that honor marriage. And last week, literally from one end of the Bible to the other, we saw 1,400 years of writings where God over and over and over is talking about marriage. And it's very clear. It's one man, it's one woman, and it is for life. There's nothing else in Scripture, folks. There's no other idea that would suggest that that picture of marriage, that recipe of marriage is going to change from one century or one culture or one couple to the next. God has given us a picture. God has given us a recipe. God has given us a design. And that is what we are to honor. That is what we are to respect and to promote and to protect and nourish if we have have marriage in our lives. Well, I mean, right from the very opening pages of the Bible, we see that marriage is a big deal to God. Did we see that last week? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Man, marriage is a big deal. Well, guess what? Because it's a big deal to God, it's a big deal to Satan. Satan realizes, hey, here is a primary target when I take out marriage, I don't just hit two people. When I take out marriage, I take out a home, I take out a society, I take out a culture. And, and so clearly Satan has leveled his attack on marriage. And I think today it's easy for us in the church to say, oh yeah, and we know who the enemies are. Boy, it's, it's the government, it's, it's homosexuality. They're, they're leading the charge to hurt marriage. And I believe that's the case but folks, they're certainly not alone in that. They're certainly not even the first to the table. There are others, some very profound issues that fill the church with things that have a dramatic impact on marriage. Things like divorce. Things like living together. Things like pornography. And I think probably if I was to pick the single greatest thing that is, is driving us to unhealthy sexuality, unhealthy relationships in marriage, it would be pornography. Maybe the greatest fuel to everything that's going on in an attack against marriage. And folks, I realize today and when we cover topics like this, Boy, it, it, it can get kind of heavy. It can lead to some anger, to some, maybe some guilt or regret. I, I want you to know that as we walk through these, the goal of this is not to say, there they are, get them. We're, we're not after a person in these things. But we are addressing some serious 
issues. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I think if you were to travel 30, 40 years back, some of you may have experienced this, unfortunately. I think if you go back into the 70s, certainly, the church was really not a help at all to somebody going through a divorce. As a matter of fact, it was just the opposite. They were really quite condemning. Most people, church people who went through a divorce in, you know, 70s or prior, maybe even up into the 80s, almost felt like church life was done. You know, God has set me on the shelf. The church has set me on the shelf. I'm not, I'm not welcome there anymore. Nothing for me there. You know, that's a mistake on our part. Now, that got corrected, but like we so often do in America, or like we do in humanity, when we correct something, we overcorrect. And and so we went from speaking only a condemning message to somebody who'd been through a divorce to where now we say almost nothing about divorce. Or or just, you know, we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable or or, or feel bad or help them dredge up old issues. And, And so we say nothing or we just accept it. And the result of saying nothing, the result of just accepting it, is that divorce is booming and growing in the church right along with society. We need to, like we did last week, we need to know and hear God's Word and let God's Word be our guide and be clear. We need to to see that, folks, it's not life that is, or the Word is not complicated. The Bible's not complicated. It's our rejection of God's Word. It's our trying to justify our rejection of God's Word that makes life complicated. We need to see God's Word as something we're trying to move toward and shape our life around and not the Bible as a a group of ideas that we have to fight. And so today, a little bit like last week, we're going to walk through some issues, see some passages, and what God's Word says. You know, there is a, a handful, literally a handful of passages in the Bible handful of issues in the Bible. They're challenging. They're, they're hard to understand. You, you, you can go to some passages and you can take two people who love God, who, who have equal ability with the scripture, who want to communicate it accurately, and they'll come up with different ideas. And, and I think sometimes we've taken that and we've made the whole Bible that way. And so that's why you hear a lot of people today say, oh, the, you know, who can figure the Bible out? Oh, there's a lot of interpretations. That's your interpretation. Folks, that's not, that's not true at all. That's why I said there are literally a handful, a precious few passages, pretty difficult to work through, kind of understand how we're to land on that. But folks, the tremendous majority of the Bible is very simple. It's very straightforward. You don't read that verse and go, wow, I have no idea what that means. Boy, I have no idea how that's to be taken. That is not the case with about 98% of the Scripture. Most of it's pretty clear. And I think you're going to find the passages we look at today are pretty clear. Not a lot of interpretive ways to do this. So let's try to walk through and just hear God. Last week we heard God speak on marriage Today we're going to hear God speak on the things that hurt marriage. We're going to look first at divorce. We're only going to look at two verses, one Old, one New Testament verse. There are dozens of verses that support and back up these verses along with them. Uh, One, Malachi 2.16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Now I ask you, is there a lot of ways to interpret that? Do you look at that and go, gosh, I wonder what God feels about this. I just don't know where he is. No, he says, I hate divorce. Now, there is an extremely important letter missing. Please, please don't miss this. It doesn't say, I hate divorced. This passage doesn't say, I hate divorced people. 
That's not at all what it's communicating. God is saying, I hate divorce. Remember what we learned last week? Marriage is a gift. God's given it to us as a, as a gift and to, and to meet a need. But like mar- marriage, like a lot of gifts that God's given, it, given us, when we pick it up with our stin-tainted hands, we, we tend to mess it up. And things that were to bless and meet needs, we can end up using to hurt each other. And as God sees what divorce does to a man and a woman, what it, what it does to a family, and really what it ends up doing to an entire society, he watches that and says, man, I hate what divorce is doing to people. I hate what it is doing to the home. I hate the way it plays into the hands of the enemy. Folks, divorce is not an opportunity for God. Divorce is an opportunity for Satan. Satan picks that up and runs with it. Satan says, yes, now I got them where I want them. I can do what I want to do. Now, I didn't say God couldn't help somebody that's been through a divorce. God can absolutely pick up the pieces and put things back together. But on the front end, God's not leading somebody to a divorce so he can do this great work in their life. And that's a work of the devil. We hear Jesus on divorce in Matthew chapter 19. We saw some of this last week of this verse. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, like last week, I'll make some observations. I don't think I'm making a lot of interpretive statements here. I think I'm just observing and pointing out what the text just said to us. So, four observations. Number one is that Jesus says we're not to separate. Now, that's not talking about, like sometimes couples go through a separation to work things out. This is referring to the divorce. Jesus says, hey, that's not, that's not what God's will. That's not what God is doing. God brings a man and a woman together to marriage. You are not to divorce. That's pretty clear. That's pretty straightforward. Then secondly, Jesus gives us an exception. There is a divorce that God allows. And the operative word is allows. That there's nowhere where God commands, I command you to get a divorce in, in this situation or that situation. There are situations where he allows it. And he says here that where there has been a case of sexual immorality, you remember last week we defined that as any illicit sexual behavior outside of one man and one woman in marriage. It's actually more than sexual intercourse. It's more than just that one thing. Anywhere where there's been sexual immorality, then there, God allows a divorce to take place in that case, meaning the innocent party can pursue a divorce and if they so choose, could be remarried. Now, I did not read the passage. I encourage you to write it down. Go read it. Check up. Make sure I'm saying the right thing. But a third reason that the... or. A, Number three, second reason that the Bible allows for a divorce is found in 1 Corinthians. And it's more than verse 15. It's, it's a number of verses in chapter 7. Verse 15 is kind of central. But the scripture allows for a divorce when a believer and an unbeliever are married. If the unbeliever wants out, the believer can let him go. What's interesting about that passage, God does turn it around and say to the believer, you cannot leave the marriage. You you cannot leave. You cannot divorce. But if the unbeliever wants to leave, then you can let them go. That's a profound statement about the permanence of marriage in God's mind. You know, having counseled with, worked with a lot of couples when they're moving toward that divorce and wanting to justify it, feel better about it, a lot of times you'll see them point back to where it all began. You know, when we got married, I mean, we were young, we were stupid, 
you know, there was this issue going on. We didn't really know what we're doing. And of course, what they're doing is they're showing how a bad decision was made back there. A dumb decision was made back there. And then that somehow, you know, that's kind of where we're at. That's kind of what has to be now. And yet, folks, I'll always show them, hey, listen, you can marry in direct defiance of God. You can marry in direct disobedience to God. And God says, the moment you say, I do, my will now is that you stay married. So you can't point back there and say, oh, this mistake was made. Oh, that was done wrong. So, you know, there's really no option but this. No, God says you stay married. So we've got these two allowable reasons for divorce. And let me phrase this in another way. There's two things that the courts of heaven allow a divorce for. And where the courts of heaven allow a divorce, then remarriage is allowed. But if it's not for those two reasons, then that's what a Jesus is addressing at the end of that. If you remarry and it wasn't for sexual immorality, it wasn't a, an unbeliever leaving the marriage. If it wasn't for that, then it's adultery. Now there's a, there's a real simple math going on here that I think we miss a lot. It, it, remember what we defined adultery as last week? Adultery is when you're married to somebody but you're engaged with somebody else physically involved with somebody else over there. You can only commit adultery when you're married. But we would look at this and say, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. I've, I've been divorced. I've, I've been divorced for 11 years. I, I'm not still married. So why are you calling it? You're, oh, you're calling it adultery because I am still married. I say, folks, here's the simple math. God's not operating by what the court of Virginia said. God's not operating by what the courts in Wisconsin or Florida or Alabama or anywhere else in the country said. We, we may get a divorce certificate. We may have a court that has allowed something. But if it wasn't for those two reasons, then God says to remarry is adultery. You know, I think one of the reasons it's important to understand that is the no remarriage is not a punishment. God, God's not punishing and saying, oh, no, you messed up your chance. You don't get another one. It's not a punishment. It's that in his eyes, you're still married. So to remarry is adultery. And folks, these are things that God states pretty simply and clearly. Now, kind of like I said at a moment last week, this isn't a counseling session. Okay, we're not dealing with the specific issues. Sometimes some very heavy, some very serious, sometimes some very dangerous issues that can come up in a marriage. I mean, I've worked with a couple where we actually looked at separation, physically getting in, in two different quarters because of safety issues, because of addictive issues. But whatever we do to work through an issue, to take on a problem in the marriage, the mentality we have to keep is that there's an operating rule. Divorce isn't the answer. Divorce is not God's will. The divorce is not the way we're going. Remarriage is not the answer. We have to work with these operating principles that Scripture's given us as we work through those things. We have to come to the place again, folks, of being able to say divorce is a sin. Divorce is a sin. It is outside of what God has for you, and it will only lead things to break. You know, I've seen a lot of marriages where... <laughs> I can understand that in that moment right there with what you've gone through, with what you're dealing with, divorce seems like an incredibly great answer. I mean, it seems like the answer. Of course, a lot of divorce people will tell you, as soon as you walk through that divorce, you find out on the other side of that door, there's a whole lot more problems. There's a whole lot of other things that come up. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Divorce does not set you on the shelf for life. It does not mean God or the church should be done with you. 
But folks, it is a sin. And because it's a sin, it is something that needs to be confessed. It needs to be treated as a sin. It needs to be repented of. And it needs to be reconciled. How many times I've heard people say, not just with divorce, but all kinds of things. I know it's a sin, but... Folks, acknowledging that you know it's a sin, but here's what you're going to do anyway, doesn't make it okay. That that doesn't somehow put a covering over it. Well, at least you acknowledge it. I'll kind of give you partial... No, it's a sin. And, and, And we need to be able to treat it as such so we can get the healing and the direction that we need. Now, I'm going to talk with you in a moment about what repentance reconciliation looks like in that area. Second issue, pornography. You know, it's interesting, folks. Obviously, when the Bible was written, there wasn't electricity, right? And like there was no electricity, there was no cameras, there was no videotapes. None of that existed. And yet it's amazing the verses that we're going to look at, how directly they speak to this issue today. Job 31 verse 1. Job is interesting. Obviously, when you open your Bible, the first book of the Bible is... Genesis, but Job is actually the first book written in the Bible. It's the oldest book in the Bible. And in the very first book that God speaks to us at, look what we get. I've made a covenant with my eyes. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze at a virgin? Have made a commitment to purity. I've made a commitment to what I allow to kind of flow through into my mind and and into my heart. I I can't be meditating on a young girl. I can't be focusing like that. Very first book of the Bible written addresses the issue of lust. Look at Psalm 101. Again, book written in 1000 BC. Still no videos, still no pictures. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I'm not going to put anything in front of me that's evil. I'm not going to put anything in front of me that is going to lead my heart and my mind to thinking in a perverted way. I will not know anything of evil. I'm not going to engage with, I'm not going to relate with evil. Psalm 101 addressing that. Then we've heard Jesus speak on on lust. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with his heart. You know, I think... Part of the problem, part of the challenge that, that maybe we kind of downplay pornography, kind of justify it in our minds is for the most part, this is something we do alone, isn't it? And so our, our, our thinking is, hey, I'm, I'm alone. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not doing anything to anybody. So how big of a deal can that be? Well, Jesus answers that, right? Let, let's talk about lust. Is that a big deal, God? If, I don't, if I'm not hurting anybody, what difference does it make? Jesus says, well, I'll tell you how big a deal it is to me. I'm going to take lust, what you're maybe thinking of as small, and I'm going to put it right up there in the top ten commandments. I'm, I'm going to liken lust. We're, we're, we're going to handle, my father and I are going to handle lust the same way we handle adultery. Obviously, Jesus is saying no lust is a big issue. It is an adultery emotionally. It is an an adultery in the heart. It is a big issue. One last verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God. Well, man, I always want to know the will of God, don't you? Man, what's God's will for my life? What, What does God want for me? Well, this is one of these verses that says this is what God's will is. Your sanctification. Boy, that's a big dollar word, isn't it? What sanctification means? Growing in God likeness. I'm growing and becoming more and more like God. I'm wanting to think like God. I want to talk like God. I want to see people like God sees them. I want to treat people like God treats them. It's growing in God-likeness. Now, God, how do I do that? If you stop and think about it, 
Man, there'd be a lot of things we would do to grow in God-likeness, wouldn't there? There'd be a lot of things I'd start doing. There'd be some things I stop doing. I mean, I would kind of expect now that a long list is coming. And yet Paul reaches out there into the world and he grabs one illustration. It's not the only way that we grow in sanctification. But he says, guys, let me tell you something. If you're going to grow, if you're going to become like God, we got to deal with this sexual immorality. You ever heard somebody refer to our culture today? Boy, we got a sex-saturated society. Sex sells everything. Well, apparently in Paul's day, that was a big issue too. Hey, listen, if we're going to become more and more like him, we've got to deal, we've got to abstain from sexual immorality that each of you, the kind of dicey language here, folks. The Bible pretty, it deals with the issue. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God. Man, you can't, you can't let your sexuality... Man, temptation is strong. But you can't let your sexuality reduce you to being an animal. You can't let your sexuality reduce you to being a person who doesn't even act like they know God. Boy, folks, the Bible is pretty clear on, on lust. You know, the, the, the statistics on pornography are mind-numbing. If, if you spend any time... Be careful, by the way, Googling pornography. If you spend any time researching this topic, it is, it is frightening. It's frightening the number of people involved. It's frightening what it's producing in our lives, what it's producing in marriages, the, the, the amount of, of time, money. You know, it's interesting. I learned something this week that I would, I would not have guessed. I, I, was, I was reading on, on this issue 10 years ago. Pornography was a 12 to 14 billion dollar business a year. That's how much money Americans were spending a year on pornography. 12 to 14 billion. Is that a lot? Sounds like a lot to me. Do you know what it is today? I was shocked. It's 4 billion. I first read that without finishing the sentence. I thought, wow. Man, something good. Maybe there's some kind of revival. Maybe we're getting it. We, we don't need to be. No, that's not why it's making a third less today than it was 10 years ago. The, the reason it's not making any money today is because it's for free. You don't really actually have to buy anything anymore. Folks, w would you allow me to just to imagine here Satan's thinking? Man, we don't need to make money on this. Profit's not the goal. Their heart is our goal. Their mind is our goal. Their body is our goal. Their home is our goal. Put it out there for free. Think, think of how messed up and how wicked this is. Americans don't give away money. We make money. And you had an industry that was making $14 billion a year. And now they just put it out there for free. Folks, the only other way to explain that is the satanic drive. There's no way we can be engaging in that on, on any level and suggest I'm honoring marriage. Remember, that's the command in our lives. It's to honor marriage. And how can I honor marriage when I'm looking at something that takes everything the Bible is against and makes it the norm? Everything the Bible calls perverted and, and makes it the regular diet. How can we say we're, we're honoring marriage when it dehumanizes women, when it, uh, it, when it abuses women? 
How, how can we say we're honoring marriage when, when something leads us to living out of control, to thinking out of control? You know, folks, as I was preparing this message, I, you know, an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, I had this much information. Statistics, scary things of what it's doing to people's mind, what it's doing to relationships. You know, and I was looking at that, and I thought, man, you know, I could come in here and go through this, and we'd go ooh and ah, and it would scare us, and we'd think, oh my gosh, Lord, help us. I decided not to share any of it. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the statistics are. Not in that moment when temptation hits. In that moment right there, it didn't matter what it's going to do to me, or what the statistics are, or what it can do. In that moment, it doesn't matter. Not until I think we come to a place where we can finally say, you know what? And this is true, by the way, folks, of everything in life. But until we can look at something and say, you know what? God has something for me and Satan has something for me. Now, I know from John 10.10 what Satan has. It's to kill, steal, and destroy. Now, who's going to take a bite out of that? Nobody. So Satan has to cover that hook up that's going to steal from our lives, that's going to destroy our lives. He has to cover that hook up with some attractive bait, doesn't he? Is that from God? Or is that from Satan? Is this moment of enjoyment or pleasure or peace or whatever, is this this what God has designed? Is this what God has led? Or is it what Satan has led to? And until we come to the place where we say, you know what, I want what God has for me. Whatever it costs, whatever it means, I want to fight, I want to resist, I want to get away from what Satan is trying to say will meet the need in my life. I think until we see it in that kind of clarity, we're not going to make the right decisions. We'll talk about how to make the right decision in just a moment. Then lastly, folks, there's the issue of living together. I'm going to be somewhat repetitive here now from what I covered last week because it dovetails pretty well. Two verses we looked at last week. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. One other verse that I quoted a dozen times and would quote it a dozen more. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. You remember we said last week, God's given us a recipe. It's one man, it's one woman in marriage for life. God's given us an order. It's the commitment that is followed by the sex. The sex celebrates the commitment. The sex nourishes the commitment. The sex strengthens the commitment. So there's a recipe and there's an order. What this verse is saying is don't monkey with the order and don't monkey with the recipe. You get things out of order and there's a judgment. You mix and match pieces, there's a judgment for that. Last week, we saw God give us a picture that was very clear of what marriage is to be. And he says in that, that it begins with a commitment. I've heard a number of times, I certainly hear out in the culture, people make statements like, what difference does a piece of paper make? Referring to a marriage license or a, a marriage contract. You know, we know we love each other. We don't, we don't need a piece of paper to do that. You know, I would use a verse like Hebrews 13, 4 and say, you know, God not only wants the piece of paper, he wants more than that. Because what God describes marriage by is the word covenant. You remember me saying last week, a a contract makes it difficult for me to get out of something. A covenant seeks to make it impossible for me to get out of something. It is the no escape cause and the trust of that that enables real intimacy. 
that enables that oneness. Now, when you understand that, that's when you should realize, wow, living together is the exact opposite of that. It's saying, hey, let's enjoy marriage, the, the marriage bed, without the marriage. Let's enjoy the benefits of marriage without covenant, without commitment, without any promise to be true to each other and to work this out. And so what it says is, hey, I want to enjoy you as a person. I want to enjoy you sexually. I want to enjoy you as a companion. But the moment that's not working for me, hey, good news. We've left the front door open, the back door open. We've left all the windows open. We've made it easy and cheap to get out of this as quick as possible. Do you realize what I just defined? That's the definition for selfishness. This is about me and what makes me happy. And the moment you're not making me happy, hey, good news. It's easy to get out of this. Folks, selfishness and intimacy, selfishness and oneness are diametrically opposed. They're, they're polar opposites. So there is no way that this is going to work. And yet, you probably wouldn't anticipate me saying something like this today. Living together kind of makes sense, doesn't it? There is kind of a logical thought behind making the choice to live together. One, marriage is a massive life decision, isn't it? Big decision. It changes life. It changes the course of things. It's expensive. And boy, if you end up making the wrong decision, it's super expensive to get out of. Divorce, one of the greatest causes of poverty in the United States today. Expensive to get in, expensive to get out. Big life-altering thing. Hey, why would we not take this thing for a test run? Why not take this on a test drive for a year or two? Find out if we're sexually compatible. Can we handle bills together? Will we get along day in and day out? Can I deal with your mother calling all the time? Doesn't it kind of, hey, let's live together for a year or two and kind of figure things out. Totally makes sense. I mean, I think we hear that. How how do you know? Well, God God just says to get married. Suffer through it anyway. You, You know, folks, it's like anything. Not just marriage. It's like anything. Something might make sense to us. But if it's opposed to God's word, it's going to break and it's going to break you. And while living together makes sense, the strange thing is nothing about it works. And that's not a Bible thumper saying that. That's sociological research and fact. Did you know that couples live together, that live together, break up at a higher rate than couples who don't live together? Did you know that couples that live together divorce, if they get married, they divorce at a higher rate? Whatever they learned about each other and figured out, okay, we can do this. No, they actually end up divorcing more than people who do not live together. People who live together, the statistics are much higher for sexual abuse, physical abuse, and a host of addictive issues. I mean, folks, there is nothing that works about living together. There's, there's not a single piece of evidence that says, well, well, at least it does. No, there, there's no at least. It doesn't do anything right and good. And that shouldn't be a shock. We have a creator. We have a designer. He's made all these things. And he gave us the instruction manual. You step outside the manual and things break. Marriage works on a commitment, on a trust, not on selfishness. The sex, which comes after the commitment, celebrates and nourishes the commitment. You know, I, one other issue, I think, in living together that I see on a, on a big increase uh, in churches, in culture, I think this is partly because we're living a lot longer. I think it's partly because there is so much more divorce. We're seeing a lot of older couples 
forego marriage and just live together. For, for the companionship, uh, for a variety of issues. As a matter of fact, some of them would say, it's not really for the sex. That's not really what's going on. That's not what this is about. We're, we're just, you know, it's just for, we just want to enjoy a married-like state without, without getting, having to go through that. You know, we've done the children thing, the grandchildren thing. Just don't really need all that formality. Is that okay? That's a good question. Let's see if the Bible answers it. He, Ephesians 5 verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now you're saying, pa- Pastor, you didn't hear my question. This, this isn't happening. <laughs> this, this isn't a part of it. You're, you're addressing that, but that, that's not what I said. No, that's not my operative word here. This phrase is, must not even be named among you. That, that phrase could be translated like this. There shouldn't even be a hint of immorality. We don't even want to give the appearance of stepping outside of God's design. We don't even want to lead somebody to guess that there might be this. Remember, folks, when it comes to following our God, we shoot for the highest bar, not the lowest bar. Now, what's the lowest standard we can set for marriage and still say we're obeying God? Now, that's not what we're doing here. We don't want to give people any idea. Now, here's the problem, especially communicating something like this in the United States. Because I'm pretty sure it's in the constitutional somewhere. I've got a constitutional right to not care about what you think. I bet every one of us has said that it's, I don't care what they think. I don't, I don't have to go by what they think. I mean, that's, that's our right. No, it's not. No, this one phrase right here out of the whole entire Bible, this one phrase says, no, it is not your right to not care about what people think. You are to do everything in your ability and power to present a picture of what God's called you to be, what God's called you to do, and we don't even want there to be a hint. That, that, mean, that doesn't mean you're guilty, but you don't want anything about your life to even present a hint. I, I mean, folks, I suppose we could go put a sign in the front yard and say it ain't happening in here. But that's, that's not very functional. That's not very realistic. I don't want to present a picture of my life that says, hey, we're just going to do this our own way and forego God's way. And boy, I would challenge those couples. You've got children. You've got grandchildren. They are absolutely going to come up in a culture that says marriage is not necessary. So when you try to lead them that way to God's idea, God's design for them, and your own life has presented a different model, what are you going to do then? Folks, God has a picture. Okay, we don't fight God's idea in his word. We try to move our life and conform our life to it. Now again, the, these ideas that I've covered today, they can bring guilt, they can bring shame, they can bring regret, they can bring anger, frustration. That hasn't been my goal. As a matter of fact, what I'd really like to share with you is some good news, folks. There's healing, there's forgiveness, there, there is hope. And the key to all that so often in Scripture is this big word. It's, I think sometimes it's used as a scary word in church. Repentance. Repentance is the key to everything. Repentance, you know, all it means is to change my mind. We use this word a lot when it relates to coming into a relationship with Christ. We need to rep- repent. I used to think, boy, if I pick the right religion, if I pick the right church, 
Boy, if I'm a good enough person, if I obey these commands, as long as I'm trying, we've got these ideas, that'll get me into heaven. But somewhere we're confronted with God's truth and we realize, oh wow, I've got to change my mind. None of that is right. I've got to, I've got to believe what God says that salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross. See, that's a change of mind. And with the change of mind comes a new course of action. Well, folks, on all of these things, when those things have been a part or are a part of our life, there needs to be repentance. And then we start moving toward getting that fixed. Now, how do we do that in these three things? I want to give you three concrete steps. You know what we need to stop being in America, in church? Bobbleheads. We sit in church and we agree. Boy, that's awful. Boy, you're right, Pastor. Gosh, oh, that's me. I'm sorry. And we're, we're bobbleheading it along. But you know what? Bobbleheads don't move, do they? The head bobbles. Nothing else moves. Folks, if there's no movement, the bobble always stops and nothing changes. There's got to be some movement. If you've been divorced, I want to give you a chance, an opportunity, maybe a way to experience some, some reconciliation, some healing, some repentance, a, a way of confessing that and dealing with that sin. We've got a class that we offer in our church. We've offered it for over 10 years. It's been in America for decades. Probably the most profound, best piece of work and ministry there is for divorce. And, and, and it's about a 10 to 12 week class. I want to ask you, I want to encourage you, would you attend it for three Wednesday nights? Pick three Wednesday nights in the next three, four, five Wednesdays and, and go to that class. Place yourself in a position to hear God on what it looks like to confess this, to deal with it, to reconcile. Now, if you're right in the middle of a divorce, got divorced last year, that makes a lot of sense. You're saying, okay, I see that. I need that right now. I'm still hurting it. I'm still carrying it. But you might be in here today and your divorce was 15 years ago. You've been happily married for the last eight years. You know, I don't need that. Yes, I would encourage you also. Place yourself just a chance to hear. Because remember, we're setting the bar as high as we can. I want to be able to communicate where I've walked in life, how I've walked, how I've walked with God through that, how I can communicate to my children, to my grandchildren, how there's been reconciliation, how there's been confession and, and repentance and forgiveness. Folks, it's taking concrete steps to bring that about. And I think this is a class that will really help you to do that. Like I said, it's 10, 12 weeks. I'm asking, would you go for for three out of the next couple of Wednesdays. We've got a table set up right on the other side of this wall. We've got some of our leaders of that class there tell you, hey, what, what are the topics the next couple of weeks? What time do you meet? Where do you meet? Maybe you're in here today and you know somebody that is going through this or needs this or just carries the heavy burden of divorce. Tell them about this class. Come with them. What we like to, a lot of things we don't like to do alone, do we? Bring them yourself to this class. So that's a step for those who've been through divorce, for couples that are living together, if you're in here today, I want to offer you something kind of unique. I want to ask you, would you be willing to sit down and talk with a pastor for 50 minutes? 50 minutes. We, I, we actually talked about that number, chose it on purpose, just like, you know, we price things at $1.99, so it's less than two. Yeah, that's what we're doing. I'm just being completely honest. Would you give less than an hour? Would you give less than one hour to sit down? Our pastoral staff, myself, Ronnie. Matter of fact, go ahead and stand up, Ronnie. Come over here where we can see you. And I'm going to direct you toward him in a little bit. So I want you to, to see what he looks like. Ronnie, myself, several of our... And we've had some folks come forward, I understand, this morning. Yep. 
uh, we're going to make ourselves available to you tomorrow night, the next, next night or two. We're going to make ourselves available to sit down with anybody who wants for 50 minutes. And our goal is not to shove you, push you into what we think you ought to do. It's to help you work through a couple of questions, figure out where you are and what the next right step for you is. If, I'm not saying it will be, if we together, you together, decide that the next right step for you is marriage, here's what we're going to encourage you to do. Leave that session and somewhere between that night and Friday get you a marriage license and then come in here next Sunday morning and we'll just marry you about the biggest weddings probably ever taken place in this community. We'll marry you right here with the church family. And you know what? If you're in here, by the way, without any promotion or prodding, all three services clapped at that. You know what, folks? When there's sin, we say, hey, that's wrong. But when people are trying to repent, that's when the church comes alongside and says, how do we help you get there? How do we help you do this? And that's exactly what we want to do. So we'll give you an appointment. As soon as possible, we will marry you next week with our church family. And then, gosh, there's still that ugly statistic laying out there. Do you remember what I said earlier? Couples that live together divorce at a higher rate. We think that's somewhat easily resolved. We think we can bring those numbers way down. And so what we're going to offer for any couple that does this is a class on Sunday morning. It's already when you're here, already when you're used to coming to. Man, a short class to help put together the pieces of how do you start building a marriage. It is not, well, it's work. But folks, it's not hard. And, and it's, it's not beyond knowledge to understand, okay, we need to act like this. We need to do this. Here's some pieces we need to put in place. We'll make that available for you to help you repent and get to the place that God wants for you. And then lastly, there's this issue of pornography. Now, folks, here's what I'd like to do. And by the way, I have learned in my reading, it was a lot higher than I thought it was going to. This is a male and female issue. But I'm confident, I hope you're not offended by this, I'm confident that if men led in purity, women would be more than happy to follow that. If we would lead out in purity. And so men, I'd like for us to have a time of dedication, a time of commitment, not yet, but in a moment I'm going to ask you to come forward. Now I've been using the words confession and repentance. I'm not really asking for that in this. I'm asking, would you be willing to take a step of purity and say... I want to commit my own heart and life. I want to be a leader of my own life, a leader of my home, a leader in my church, a leader in my community toward purity. I imagine we'll have men down here who have never looked at pornography in their entire lives. And they may be standing next to somebody who's looked at pornography every day this past week. But that's not the issue. We're not not coming forward saying what we've done or what we've not done. We're coming forward and saying, I want to make a commitment to this. And along with this time of kind of dedicating ourselves here at the altar of the Lord to purity, we're going to come back on, I want to encourage you, invite you to come back on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock right here in this room. Myself, Ronnie, some of our other pastors have got a study. It's called The Plan, a 30-day strategy for sexual integrity. It's a, it's a 30 days. You'll take the book. You'll work through it each day. But we'll come in here for the next four Wednesdays and kind of work on that together and pray together. Let me tell you something. You will never battle this alone. You will not conquer it alone. We need to link arms together as brothers 
Hold each other accountable. Pray for one another. Help each other in that. So if you're a man who wants to be a part of that, says, I want to lead out in purity. I want to encourage you. Our pastoral staff, our deacons are going to be a part of this. Come forward right now. Stand up wherever you are in your seats and, and just come down here to the altar and let's have a time of prayer. I'm going to come down here and join you. I'm not up up above standing apart, but I'm a part of the men that want to see this, this sexual purity change in our, in our culture, in our homes, and in our lives. So you make your way down here, men, as you're coming. Let me begin to pray. Lord, it's somewhat symbolic, but I think it's important that, that there's some kind of movement. We're not just sitting and staring or nodding in agreement, but we're moving. And we're moving toward you. We're moving toward your altar to stand before you and make this commitment. Lord, I'm confident that there are men before me that have never seen it. I'm confident that there are men before me who, who hate themselves because of the impact this is having in their lives. And Lord, we just come together before you. We're, we're asking for help. We're asking for direction on how we take a stand for purity and how we lead for that in our lives, in our homes, in our church, in our community. God, you've seen us come now to this altar. You've seen us come to this moment. I pray you'll bless it. I pray you'll give us guidance. I pray you'll give us direction. I pray you'll give us freedom where that needs to be found. Lord, I pray that this moment, joined with the other moments in our other services, our other campus today, God, I pray you would do something profound in our lives through this, that you would do something profound in our church through this, that this could literally change the course of a society. God, you called 12 men together and they changed the world. Sir, look how many men there are here, God. Lord, I know it's easy to walk down here in this time. It's not even that hard to show up on Wednesday night. But God, would you take the effort we've given? Would you bless it? Would you multiply it? And would you produce a great commitment, a great devotion, a great army of men who are pure? We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Church, would you encourage them for this commitment and this stand? Thank you. And want to encourage you, y'all can head back. I want to encourage you to be back Wednesday night, if you can, 7 o'clock right here. You know, we've already had some movement. We've already kind of begun the invitation. So now let's go ahead and move toward closing the service. And, and folks, my question, what I want to encourage you to do right now is say, God, what's the next step for me on all of these issues? Maybe... Maybe you've never been directly involved, but folks, I think every one of us has at least been indirectly involved with one or more of these issues. As we leave here today, God, what's the step I take? What do I do to be more than a bobblehead in this moment? You know, for some of you, it may be to enter a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because nothing can be handled without His power, without His grace, without His forgiveness. Maybe you're here today and you want to begin a relationship with Jesus. You go out these doors and straight back to the window. There's a table a little bit to the right. There's a group of people standing there. You walk up and say, hey, could you tell me about what it looks like or how I do or I know I want to. What do I do? 
come into relationship with Jesus. They're just waiting for you out there for this moment. You can talk, they'll be out there for one minute or you can talk to them for 10 minutes. You, you pick the time, but they're waiting on you. Maybe you're here today and you know, man, I, the step I need to take is get connected to the church. Have a band of brothers. Have some people I can build accountability with. If you feel like God's leading you to be a member here, go to that same table and say, hey, tell me about being a church member. If you've been through a divorce, know somebody that's been through a divorce, want to help in that situation, go by that table that's just right on the other side of that wall right there. If you're a couple that's been living together, as we're kind of meandering and moving that way, you kind of meander and move this way. And Ronnie will be right over here with you to set up whatever we can do to to help you out with that situation. What's the decision? What's the step you need to take right now as we seek to worship the Lord, not only in this room, but all week long in how we live? Amen? Amen. God bless you. Y'all have a great week.